Um, Grant, uh, I, I, wonder, I wonder what makes you angry. I want you to try and think of the last time you felt angry. If it helps, you can close your eyes. The last time you felt angry. Like, what did that feel like? What did your anger sound like? What went on in your mind when you were angry? How did you deal with it? Are you a, a sudden exploder? Or do you kind of opt for the simmering silence? Or do you suppress it like in the hope that no one will see for now? What makes you angry at God? I mean, it happens, right? I mean, maybe we bury that anger, we suppress it, we push it out of our minds, but let's acknowledge this reality. Like, isn't it often our perceived sense of injustice that makes us angry with God? Something happens and it doesn't seem right to us. Like, how could this be right? I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't understand. And among other things, this morning God wants to address our anger issues in our passage this morning, we see an angry prophet and how God works in his situation and how he can work in our situation and in our hearts. So let's start with Jonah's uh, response to what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks. Uh, so if you look down at three, 3 verse 10, When God saw what the Ninevites did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Like Jonah has just witnessed this great revival, like a whole city turning to God, turning from their sin in such deep repentance. And God has turned from his judgment. But how does Jonah feel about that? 4 verse 1, but to Jonah this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? To Jonah, what God has done is very wrong. This is morally wrong. And he's angry. He is furious about it. And it's clear, isn't it, that his anger is directed at God. But it's so good that he prays to God. Like there's no pretending, there's no suppressing, there's no dressing things up 
in flowery language, like he brings his honest feelings to God. I mean, after all, God knows your heart. Like, there is no point pretending before God. He brings his honest feelings to God. And do you notice as we sort of walk through his prayer, there's the first is, I said. <clears throat> like, Jonah has apparently uh, had a previous conversation in which he's previously objected to God's plan. I mean, it sounds like all along, Jonah <clears throat> wanted God to conform to his wishes and ideas, and he was not wanting to conform to God's plans and purposes. Like, I said this. I told you. Like, already, can you kind of sense the lack of humility here before God? I told you. And it's so easy for lament to kind of turn into lecture. From like, I'm finding this really difficult to, God, this is really what you should be doing about this. I said this, I said this, and that's why I fled. And it's only now we give an insight into Jonah's motivations for running away. I didn't want to be part of this. I didn't want you to do this. So why? Why? And do you see? He says, I knew. I knew it. I knew you're like this. I knew you'd do this. Like, I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God. Like, showing free favour and undeserved kindness to guilty sinners. I knew that you're slow to anger, even in the face of grievous sins. I knew that you're abounding in love, in faithful, loyal love. I knew that you're a God who relents from sending calamity, who, who relents from sending judgment on those who repent. I knew you're like this. I knew you'd do this. Like, do you see, this is rock-solid theology. Like, he knows this, but he doesn't like this. At least not for them. At least not for them. Like, grace to them? Compassion to them? Not for them. Not to them. Now, why? And I think it's really helpful to clarify the context in which this book is set. So I said last week, Jonah's mentioned elsewhere only in 2 Kings 14, and that places him in the reign of King Jeroboam II. So that's about 786 to 746 BC. Now, if you, know from, if you know the book of Kings, we know from the book of Kings that a bit later, a king called Tigath-Pileser uh, of Assyria, he's going to go on the warpath. So Assyria is going to return to its violence. And he's going to come against the land of Israel, but at that point he's paid off with tribute. So they pay him off. Safe for a time. After that, King Shalmaneser, uh, he's going to attack the northern kingdom. And then King Sargon 
is going to finish the job. So in about 25 years, after the time of Jeroboam II, there's going to be no more northern kingdom of Israel. Only Judah with Jerusalem is going to be is going to be left for God's people. But that's coming. That's coming. That's not the context here. And it's really important that we grasp that. So Jonah is not voicing the pain of a traumatized people who have been hurt by the Assyrians. That's not the context. We're before that. And of course, later readers will feel the pain of how God's mercy here leads to future loss for Israel. But this book does not address that issue either. But there are other Bible books that address those kinds of issues. This is anger about God's covenant love extending beyond Israel to wicked foreign enemies. That's the issue. So pagan Ninevites or pagan sailors, it didn't matter to Jonah. Like pagans should not be the recipients of God's gracious love. That's the issue for Jonah. Like this way of describing God's character is a a kind of key summary that turns up time after time in the Old Testament. It's how God... uh, introduced himself with his sort of special name to to Moses. And when he initiated a covenant, a special relationship based on promises with his people. Now Jonah's happy that God is gracious and compassionate to him and to all God's people. But it's just for us. It's just for us, just for me. It's just for us, it's not for them. Surely God shows love to his friends, not to his enemies. It's just for us. It's just for us. And for Jonah, it seems outrageous. It is utterly scandalous that God would show this loyal love, this grace and this mercy, this kind of covenant love, that he would show it to them. Now, I don't know about you, I distinctly remember the first time I thought through the implications of salvation by grace. And I have to confess, it made me angry. Like that vile, evil people could simply trust in Jesus and be totally forgiven. But like Jonah, I hadn't appreciated the depths of my sin and the depths of the punishment that Jesus endured for our sin. Like if anyone is going to be saved, it has to be by grace, by gift, because we can't save ourselves. We know the evil of our hearts. We can't save ourselves. And if we're going to accept grace for ourselves, we have to be willing to accept that God can offer grace to whomever he pleases. And so there there is no kind of sinner outside the reach of this gracious love. But you see, Jonah can't accept that. And can you see the impact that it's having on him? Verse 3, I want you to kill me. I want you to kill me. Like This is Jonah's prayer request 
in the light of all of this. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. And this is not a unique prayer request. Like Moses asked God to end his life when he couldn't bear the overwhelming responsibility of leading God's people. Like Elijah asked God to end his life after perhaps it seemed like the great victory on on Mount Carmel had come to nothing when Queen Jezebel threatened to kill him. Like Job asked God to end his life in the face of great, unbearable suffering. Like three men, I just can't bear it, they're saying. And I don't know about you, but I don't think I'm any stronger or any more spiritual than any of them. And statistically, it's likely there's someone here this morning feeling just like that. And if that's you this morning, please do reach out to someone here for help and support this morning. But compared to those overwhelming situations, we might think that Jonah's just being a bit melodramatic here. But I don't think we should downplay just how overwhelming anger can be. Like the effects it can have on our minds, our bodies, like anger can be utterly all-consuming. Like taking up all your attention, sapping all your energy, as we get so consumed by it. Like often what gets labelled depression is, is frozen anger. And anger at perceived injustice can lead to despair, particularly when you feel powerless to do anything about it. Jonah's saying, if this is how things are playing out, if you're going to show gracious love to them, I don't want to be in this world anymore. Like, is that intolerable? I can't bear it. Kill me now. Wow. And the Lord replies, and it's not, how dare you speak to me like that. And it's not, bam, I strike you down. He asks the question, is it right for ye to be angry? So it's not that anger is an absolutely wrong emotion. Like, it can't be. Like, God gets angry at sin. But his anger is always righteous and therefore is always under control. Like the Bible does not say, don't get angry. It says, in your anger, do not sin. In your anger, do not sin. There are some things to get angry about, to get rightly angry about. Now Jonah thinks he's on the moral high ground here. Like, he thinks this is very wrong, this is an injustice, and an utterly unbearable injustice to him. Like, how wrong we can be. How wrong we can be. We constantly need our sense of of justice and righteousness to be shaped by God's heart and character and his word. Is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? So some key questions as we think through our anger, like what am I angry about? What am I angry about? Like why am I angry in this moment? 
Why now? Is this a right cause? And then how am I expressing this anger? And what impact is it having on other people? So that's Jonah's response. He's angry at God. Let's see how God works. Let's look at God's provision as he's exposing the heart of anger and even further. Verse 5. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. Do you see, it sounds like the 40 days, uh, the 40 days of warning given to Nineveh, the 40 days are not quite up yet. And so Jonah goes out, to see what is going to happen. Like maybe he's hoping that his most recent angry outburst has had an impact and God is going to change tack. Do you see God intervenes? Like God is at work here. And God provides three things. And it's not actually to reform Jonah. Like you see, Jonah is just as angry after this as he is before. But God wants Jonah to kind of have this experience through which he's really exposing what's going on in Jonah's heart here. So you see, first God provides a leafy plant. It springs up overnight. We see that in verse 10. So it's miraculous growth here to provide for Jonah. Like Jonah's kind of makeshift shack, provides some shelter, but, but not for his head And so this plant grows up and over and provides shade for Jonah's head. It's like protecting him from the heat of the sun. And as a result, Jonah's not just happy, he's very happy. He's very happy about the plant and the shade that it's providing for him. But then do you see at dawn the next day, God provides something else. He provides a worm which chewed the plant and as a result it withers and dies really quickly. And then when the sun comes up God provides a scorching east wind. So it's unbearably hot and the sun blazed down 
on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. So we mustn't think that God's sole objective in our lives is comfort and ease. God wants to change and transform us. And you see, he's using discomfort here for his good purposes. So having had a day of comfort in the shade, Jonah now experiences a day of sweltering heat. And so again, Jonah is despairingly angry. And this time justifying his anger. It is right. I am right to be angry. And there are kind of hints of bigger purposes here. This isn't just about a plant. Uh, The language of shade is, is really interesting. I don't know about you, on a hot day, I'll always opt for a shady spot. Jude, my wife, likes sitting out in the sun. Not me. Can't bear it. I want the shade. There's something about the cool of the shade, uh, the comfort of the shade. Maybe you can relate to that. Like elsewhere in the prophets, shade is the blessing of protection and joy that comes from God. It's the promise that's held out to God's repentant people in Hosea 14, that the people will enjoy God's shade again. So there's something about the shade, like Jonah being provided some shade here. And the verb that's translated to ease, uh, to ease his discomfort, and it can mean to deliver. It can be translated to deliver. So it delivers him from his discomfort. So do you see Jonah's experiencing shade and deliverance and blessing? And then the plant withers and it dies. And the word dies in verse 10 is the word perish. It perishes. It's the same word form that we've seen throughout Jonah. The sailors didn't want to perish. The king of Nineveh didn't want them to perish. So do you see, Jonah cares about this perishing plant. Like he's outraged at its perishing. But as we've seen, not for perishing sailors and not for perishing Ninevites. And the east wind, the east wind is always a bad sign in the Old Testament. Like it was the east wind that scorched the crops when Pharaoh explains his dream to Joseph. It was the east wind that brought the plague of locusts on Egypt. In the prophets, it's the east wind that brings drought and judgment. And ironically, in Hosea, the east wind represents Assyria itself. So this is a sign of divine displeasure, displeasure, but Jonah can't see it. He can't see it, and so we're back to anger. You see, it's so good that God works in our situations and circumstances. And that these experiences, like all we've been through this past week, our experiences, our situations, our circumstances, God's using to really reveal what's going on in our hearts. Like how kind of God to expose our heart struggles. Like he wants to work in us. And we can thank him for the comforts that we so often take for granted. 
And we can thank him too that he's at work in the discomfort that we've experienced this past week. He disciplines those he loves. And I wonder what God has been exposing about your heart this week. Like, How have you responded to your difficult circumstances? And what is God teaching you in that? What's he revealing about your heart? Where does he want to work in your your life? So do you see God's at work exposing this this heart of anger here through through this experience? And this is the lesson of it all. God's right concern. God's right concern. Do you see in verse 10? This is how God responds. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? So here comes the lesson from all this. God's not saying you should not have been concerned about the plants. He's saying, okay, you had concern about the plants and all that it did for you. Like even though you didn't have anything uh, to do to look after it, you didn't make it grow, and even though it was so temporary, but nonetheless, you were concerned about it. Can't you see, can't you see that I should be rightly concerned about something so much more significant? For a great big city, chocks full of people, like of people, of people, like more than 120,000 people. So something like the population of Doncaster or Cambridge and they cannot tell their right hand from their left. Just checking I got that right. Their right hand from their left. Which is a Bible way of saying, they lack moral discernment. Like, should I not be concerned for such morally lost people? And it's also full of animals, and God cares for them too. And there's some lessons there, but maybe for another time. Of God's care for animals... Should I not pity these people? Should I not show them mercy? In other words, it's not right for you to be angry about this. And it is right for me to be concerned about them. But dear Jonah and dear original reader and dear friends today, like God is saying, I long for you to share this concern too. It's not right when we've experienced deliverance and we've been rescued from punishment, from perishing, and we've come into God's shade, and we've come into relationship with this God, and we've experienced his grace and his mercy and his love in our lives, it's not right for us to think it's just for me and it's just for us and it's not for them. And we might not be angry about God's concern for the lost this morning. But do we share his concern? 
And I don't mean tick box theology. I mean in our day-to-day lives. Like, what are our lives saying on this matter? And I say this as much to myself as to anyone else. The American pianist, uh, singer-songwriter and evangelist Keith Green wrote this song. And these are painful words. They're helpful, I think. He sings, Do you see, do you see all the people sinking down? Don't you care? Don't you care? Are you going to let them drown? How can you be so numb not to care if they come. You close your eyes and pretend the job's done. Oh, bless me, Lord, bless me, Lord. You know it's all I ever hear. No one aches, no one hurts, no one even sheds one tear, but he cries, he weeps, he bleeds, and he cares for your needs. And you just lay back and keep soaking it in. Open up, open up and give yourself away. You see the need, you hear the cries. So how can you delay? God's calling and you're the one, but like Jonah, you run. He's told you to speak, but you keep holding it in. Oh, can't you see it's such a sin? The world is sleeping in the dark that the church just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. And I say again, the solution is not a guilt trip. It's God himself. We're in the arms of the gracious and compassionate God who is slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who has relented from sending calamity on you. And if that's how he's treated you and that's how he's treated me, then truly there is no kind of sinner who is outside the reach of his love. So press into God's gracious character, like press into his unmerited kindness, press into his loyal love, Like his grace to us is amazing, it's unfailing, it's unrelenting. Like our sins are so many, but his mercy is more. Like amazing love, how can it be that you, my God, should die for me? Like love that pays the debt, like love that covers over all our sins, past, present and future. Love that takes the punishment. Like no condemnation remains. Unearned, unconditional, so secure. Like look at the extent of his concern for you. Like he sees you and he knows you and he loves you and he's for you. And he won't let you go and he's taking you home to to glory to be with him forever. Like, this is how we come to share the great concern of our God for the lost, for the nations. Like, it's knowing him that drives evangelism. Knowing him drives mission. Like, God be at work in my heart and in our hearts that we might know him more. And so we turn from our sins 
and we trust in him and we pursue the godliness of evangelism and mission day by day. It is godly. So press into him, like knowing his grace will make you gracious and knowing his compassion will make you compassionate and knowing his mercy will make you merciful and knowing his patience will transform your anger and knowing his love will melt our numb hearts. I say again, it's the love of Christ that compels us to speak of him. Like knowing him will compel us to share him, to talk of him. The most amazing person we've, we've ever met. That others may stand in the shade, like under the blessings of God, and all because of his mercy and his love. It's right that God is concerned about me, about you, about them. Let's pray that we'll share his concern and that our hearts will be melted and moulded by who he is and all that he's accomplished for us. Let's turn to God's own prayer.